Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode five of Kindred Cast, Lion Tree's bi monthly guide to the world of tech, media, and everything in between. I'm your host, Aviva Rumani. Today's show is a special one for us here at Lion Tree. We are thrilled to have had the opportunity to spend some time with Nobel Prize winning psychologist, economist, and author, Professor Daniel Kahneman. Notable for his work in the study of judgment, decision-making, and behavioral economics. Arye and Professor Kahneman were the keynote at the Hebrew University Nexus Conference in New York this past week. Stay tuned to their incredibly insightful discussion around the human mind. Jeremy Adam is back with a brand new quiz question. Listen to the end for the answer and all the details. Next, we'll hear from Lion Tree's Leslie Mallon, who will provide some visibility into the public markets with quick hits. And we'll conclude with our new segment, Lion vs. Lamb. Lion Tree team members Yuri Brodsky and James Lindsay face off on one of today's hot button issues. Today, we're focused on the role of technology and elections. Here we go. I'm pleased to introduce our CEO, R.A. Borkoff, and Professor Daniel Kahneman. So thank you, Professor Kahneman, my friend Donnie, for, uh, for being here with us today. Uh, just a, a few words of introduction um, that I think will give you, uh, obviously, the right setup to discuss uh, some of the topics we're going to talk about today. Um, one is, Donnie has been described as the most influential psychologist and behavioral economist in the world, uh, two fields which you don't always see brought together. David Brooks of the New York Times has said that Kahneman and his colleague Tversky will be remembered hundreds of years from now. They are the Lewis and Clark of the mind. During your 60-plus years of research, which began while he was a student at Hebrew University in the 1950s, Donnie completely evolved the traditional thinking in the fields of human rationality, behavior economics, and decision-making. In 2002, as everyone knows, uh, he was awarded the Nobel Prize in Economic Science, a first ever for a psychologist. And most recently, his relationship with Amos Tversky has been immortalized by Michael Lewis in the New York Times best-selling book, The Undoing Project. He's also the author of the international best-selling Thinking Fast and Slow, which has become one of the so-called business bibles when it was published in 2011. Donnie is currently a professor of psychology and public affairs emeritus at the Woodrow Wilson School at Princeton University. And Donnie, it is great to welcome you to Nexus. My pleasure. Before, before we delve into the mind, I figure we start with the soul. Tell us about your experience in the 1950s as a student at the Hebrew University and what kind of environment that fostered for you going back to your beginnings. I was selected for a unit that still exists, actually, at the Israeli Defense Forces, uh, the Academic Reserve, which is basically the equivalent of the ROTC, except it's for future professionals. And the idea was that you would get your officer training during uh, the summers, and uh, in, my, uh, in my cohort, which was the second one ever, uh, we still went for a year in the infantry as platoon leaders, which was one of the most interesting years of my life, certainly. And then we worked as professionals. So that was my path. So I went to Hebrew University when I was 17. 
there was no campus, really. The old campus on Mount Scopus was isolated. Uh, there was that famous horrible tragedy in which uh, about 70 people, I think, were killed, including the, the chair and founder of the Department of Psychology, so there was no psychology department. We held classes in an old building known as Terra Santa, and it was all improvised. Everything was improvised. And that was the major experience, actually, of Israel during those few years, during those early years, with that everything was new, everything was happening for the first time, and there was room for everyone to, to do things that, that were interesting, that were exciting, that were novel. And I had more than my share of opportunities in those early years. And bridging that to Israel overall, uh, Israel, as everyone knows here, is, is one of the innovation hotbeds in the world. I mentioned to you earlier that there are more uh, companies listed on the NASDAQ from Israel than the countries of Korea, Japan, Singapore, India, and all of Europe combined. There are VC dollars in mass coming into Israel, not only from the U.S., but from China and other countries, and obviously a lot of M&A and investment overall. What do you think makes Israel that kind of innovation hotbed and center of attention? I thought there was a characteristic that I remember I noticed early in my career and as a graduate student in Berkeley. I would describe the, the Israeli intellectuals as, as unintimidated. I mean, that was really the, the major characteristic. I mean, you know, that, you could call it chutzpah if you wanted, and, you know, many people did. And, and there was a fair amount of arrogance. But, but the main thing was sort of very down-to-earth, and I thought that to some extent the experience of Israelis of doing their professional thinking in a second language was a very important part of it because when you are thinking in a second language, you are not really into words very much. You are into the substance. And there is something down to earth. There is really a characteristic of Israeli intellectual and I think it's broader than in high tech. It's fairly general that, that you can recognize. I wouldn't call it earthiness, but a sort of basic common sense and a lack of fear. You could call it a lack of respect for authority. <laughs> you know, all, all of the above. And in today's Israel, it's, it's flourishing in the high tech in ways that are really truly fascinating to behold. So taking you back to when you and your longtime partner and colleague, Amos Tversky, were collaborating at the Hebrew University. Uh, take us through the beginning of that partnership, and when did you realize, both of you, that you were marrying psychology and probability theory and behavioral economics in a way that created a new discipline? When, when did you first understand that? You know, I'm going to answer a question you haven't asked, so uh, before, before I get to this, to you know, I, you know, we said no respect for authority, so there... Uh, I wanted to tell you a story of my personal experience, which is one of the chapters in my life that I'm the proudest of, and it was my service in the Israeli Defense Forces as a psychologist. So I had my year as a platoon commander, and then I became a psychologist. And there were no psychologists. This was 1954. I had two years. I did my BA in two years, so I had two years of 
a rather inferior training, I would say. But I was possibly the best trained psychologist in the Israeli army. Uh, my boss was a brilliant chemist. He was completely self-taught in psychological research. And I was just given the assignment of setting up an interviewing system for the Israeli army. So actually, Michael Lewis writes about it. But Michael uh, doesn't have uh, in his book. So doing that interview, it's stuff that I still do. It's very much some of the ideas that I had when I was 21, 22 years old, uh, been with me. Uh, since then, and the system that I set up actually endures. It's, it's still in use in Israeli army. And, and as I said, it's uh, something that I'm extremely proud of. And it was the background, part of the background for the work that Amos and I did years later, because I was interested in our intuitions, in our judgment about people, and in the f- flaws of our intuitions, and especially in a topic that I'm fascinated by to this day, uh, which is overconfidence. That as you interview someone and you think you understand them, and even when the data show you that actually you don't know a thing about them, you still get that illusion that you understand them. So that was the background. Now, many years later, I encountered Emma Stursky, who was, I think, universally thought of as the most intelligent, smartest person that, you know, in everybody's life. I mean, there is a famous story, again, Michael Lewis quotes it. It's hard not to quote Michael Lewis in that context, but that a very well-known psychologist had a one-item intelligence test, which was the sooner you recognize that Amos Tversky is smarter than you are, the smarter you are. So uh, that's... uh, (laughs) That was the kind of person I was lucky enough to pair with. And together, we turned out to be much better than either one of us singly. There was a a combination of skills. We were just extraordinarily lucky. And we are lucky that we liked each other and that we liked spending all day together. And that's the way that we worked at Hebrew University and in Jerusalem. Many, many hundreds of hours of walking through the streets of Jerusalem, talking and laughing, that was our mode of work. You asked when we knew that our work was important. The answer is, we really didn't. You know, we were doing psychology, and by a set of accidents, it happened to diffuse beyond psychology. The accident was largely that, that we used a method for presenting our results by vignettes and by stories that people found compelling. We never intended to influence economics. We published a major paper in a journal, a prestigious journal in economics called Econometrica. But we did that because that was the journal in which you published very good articles in decision theory. And we thought we had a good decision theory. So we became aware that we were influential in economics as this was happening, but, but we didn't intend it, we didn't anticipate it, and it wasn't a goal. I appreciate you're getting around to the answer to my question eventually. Yeah. <laughs> I'm well, not completely rebellious, so then you're not. <laughs> well, if it's okay with you, I want to focus on a few areas of uh, the mind that you have become known for. Uh, one is rationality. Uh, Two is unconscious bias or emotion. 
in decision making. And three is noise, which is a relatively new area of focus, three that we're going to get to as well. And of course, all of their applications. So just talking about rationality, I want to go back to one of your initial experiments, which is called the Linda problem. And in it, participants in the experiment were told about an imaginary young woman named Linda, who was single, outspoken, and very bright, and who as a student was deeply concerned with issues of discrimination and social justice. The participants were then asked which was more probable. One, Linda is a bank teller. Or, I mean, uh, uh, she is now 40 years old. She's now 40 years old. At, at that, yeah. An imaginary woman aging with you. So one, Linda's a bank teller, or two, Linda is a bank teller and is active in the feminist movement. The overwhelming response was that number two was more probable. In other words, that given the background information provided, feminist bank teller was more likely than bank teller. Of course, that was wrong. So please explain how you came up with that example and what the implications are, please. What Elie just actually illustrated is why we were lucky enough to become influential And this is because we generated puzzles of this kind that people could talk about and that that were sort of funny. This is also part of why doing the work with Amostvorsky was where we were laughing all the time because we were generating puzzles like this. And what was attractive to us about it was that we wanted to fall for every one of them. It's not that we were so smart that we recognized in ourselves the tendency to make that error. And... What Linda illustrates, and there are many other illustrations of the same thing, what the Linda puzzle illustrates is that we don't really judge probability because the judgments we make don't conform to probability theory, but we judge the similarity to a stereotype. And Linda is much more similar to a feminist bank teller than she is similar to a bank teller. Now, that's not shocking when you're talking about similarity, you know, Adding detail can increase the similarity, but adding detail to a description can never increase the probability, can only decrease the probability. So that was the key. And the Linda example, it has irony built in, which our work had, uh, and that actually is is what made it. It was the irony, and the irony was self-reflective. It was about our difficulties and the flaws in our intuition. Which brings me to the topic of rationality. Uh, Do you think people are basically rational or irrational? I, that's what I was going to say. I don't like the question. Uh, <laughs> I, the word rationality is a technical term. It's a technical term in decision theory and in economic theory. And it describes a fully rational individual. And we're not even close to that. But we couldn't be. Nothing with a finite mind could satisfy the axioms of rationality. So as a technical term, of course we're not. Uh, The only people who pretended to believe that we are, and they didn't really believe it, were economists, because economic theory assumed fully rational agent. So that's why our work seemed to. But, you know, showing that people are not rational, it's as easy as falling off a chair. There's no trick to that. Of course we're not rational. What I don't like, and the reason I said I don't like the question, I don't like the word irrational. And we're frequently described as having 
done work establishing that people are irrational. We did nothing of the kind. Irrationality, so far as I'm concerned, is frothing at the mouth. It's acting on emotion and impulse. That's not who we are. Most of what we do, we do very well. We do very well with experience. Most of what we think, we think pretty much okay. Uh, We are not rational, but to describe us as irrational is missing the mark. It's more complex and more interesting than that label. Jeremy Adam has today's KinCast quiz question. In 2017, which of the following occurs most frequently in an internet minute? A, a YouTube video view. B, a tweet sent. C, a snap created. Or D, a Tinder swipe. Let's now check in with Leslie Mallon to get some insight on the public markets. Hi, this is Leslie Mallon. I head Liontree's public markets business, and here are the TMT quick hits. Earnings season is finally winding down, but I'd highlight two very topical themes, starting with, if you are not first, I mean AI first, you're last. Second, the scale moat for big tech keeps getting bigger. The proliferation of artificial intelligence enables better, smarter products and services, and a wide range of companies are trying to figure out how to integrate it into their business functions and offerings. Big tech is all over this. While truly transformational AI remains a ways away, 2017 is the year we are seeing a marked step up in functionality enabled by AI and machine learning. Notable recent developments in this area include Google officially shifting from a mobile-first orientation to an AI-first focus, given its vision of where the world is now heading. It is integrating AI across its products, which makes for some interesting new feature capabilities related to Google Assistant, Google Home, Photos, and Mail, to name a few. With their new Google Lens, you can do things like point your phone at a restaurant on the street, and Lens finds online information about the restaurant. In Mail, Automatic responses are suggested to users based on content in a message. You can do entire transactions on Assistant too, such as verbally ordering takeout from a restaurant that supports Assistant, and Google handles all of it, including the payment and the receipt. If done right, this will certainly make life easier. It was also notable to see smart speakers gaining so much momentum with consumer adoption. According to a recent survey by Tech Analysis, 56% of U.S. households that reported they have at least one smart home device said that they have smart speakers. And 60% of those purchases occurred in the last six months. These are relatively new purchases. Smart thermostats are the second most popular smart home device at 44%. Amazon's Echo dominates with 71% share of smart speakers, followed by Google Home at 24%. But Microsoft hopes to join the party and just unveiled its smart speaker called Invoke. Lastly, an interesting example of how AI is being implemented in the advertising world was that Dole recently used an AI platform by Algorithms called Albert for a full digital campaign in Asia that included display, banner, Facebook images, and video. Albert handled all the buying, optimization, and placement. Dole Asia apparently saw an 87% increase in sales versus the prior year. Sounds to me like that was a success. 
We are still at the very early stages of AI, and I suspect it will be an iterative process. But I have no doubts about how fundamentally it will change our lives and the way companies do business over the next decade. Moving more broadly to the theme of scale, it is hard to escape this barrier to entry in the tech sector. After strong results from U.S. tech titans like Amazon, Google, and Facebook, the Chinese tech giants Tencent and Alibaba equally led the pack when they reported last week with revenue growth in excess of 55% year-over-year. Not too shabby for $300 billion market cap companies. The big tech titans use their profitable core businesses to seed the killer products of tomorrow. Of the top 10 U.S. companies by market cap, five are tech companies, representing over 60% of the total. Ten years ago, only one company, Microsoft, hit that list. U.S. tech equities in the S&P are up about 30% over the last 12 months, versus non-tech, up 9%. This brings us to our stat of the day, which relates to virtual reality. According to a survey of U.S. internet users by Thrive Analytics, more than half of respondents were just not interested in owning a VR headset. To be fair, when you break the data down for the 18 to 34-year-olds who are more the target audience, price is still the biggest gating factor, but the percent that responded just not interested was not that far behind. Virtual reality has been slow to take off for a myriad of reasons, but we are still in a wait-and-see mode, at least for now. Thanks for listening, and we'll be back next time with some more quick hits. And now here's the debut of our new segment, Lion versus Lamb. Hello, my name is James Lindsay, and I'm joined by my colleague. Yuri Brodsky, hi, how are you? So we are here today to talk about can tech save politics? And there's been a lot of talk about the negative implications of tech and politics, fake news, email hacks, and even appalling polling. But can tech be a positive influence? Look, James, I appreciate the question, but I disagree with the premise of what you're asking. I think technology uh, or different technologies have not been used for what you call good for a long, long time. Think back to the 1960s, 1964 election, between Johnson Goldwater, the famous campaign, the famous ad with a girl counting down to the nuclear Armageddon, which was, you know, tilted the campaign in, in, in favor of Johnson. Think back to the yellow journalism of late 19th century Spanish-American war, uh, arguably was sort of started that war. For 200 years, technology have been used to manipulate and sometimes misinform the general population. First it was the newspapers, then it was the television, now it's the social media, the so-called fake news. And so I'm not sure how that can be stopped because the powers that be the politicians, the powerful people will always want to use technology to influence and control the masses through social media and through other mediums. So it's upon individuals, upon the communities, upon the organizations, upon the corporations to interpret, control, manage that information to counteract some of the impact of technology. Doesn't surprise me, Yuri, to hear a relatively pessimistic view from you. Let's accept the point you've made, but let's talk about the ways 